if you have a Bible or electronic device with a, with a Bible on it, Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3 is where we are today. And um, if you are kind of just jumping in the middle of the series and you want to see where we've been and what we've talked about already, uh, you can follow along with our podcast um, or just simply go to our website, which is redemptionaz.com. Choose the Gilbert Congregation, and uh, you can watch and listen to... Um, some of the messages are, and, and hear kind of where we've been and, and, and track with us. And that way you can kind of get the context of where, where we, we have been. If you don't have a Bible at all, we're going to put the text up on the screen for you this morning. Um, if, if you don't own a Bible, we want to invite you to um, the bookstore, which the commons in the center of our campus. And, uh, you're, and there you're going to meet a guy named Aaron. Um, and Aaron will uh, outfit you with a Bible. If you don't have one, just make sure you talk to him about it. The other day I was talking to my dad. My, my family lives in Florida. And I was talking to my dad on the phone and kind of talking through some of the challenges of having three kids under the age of four and kind of lamenting a little bit about some of the tension I'm feeling like, are they ever going to be able to use a toilet or a toothbrush or is the pajama battle worth the fight that's going on? And, uh, and you know, I'm just kind of, kind of laying out these things and I'm fishing for like advice, like, hey, what would you do? Or what did you do? We, there were four of us that my parents had. And, uh, and the whole time my dad is just like giggling on the phone. <laughs> He's, he's just laughing the whole time. He's like, this is not really what I called for. But, and uh, the only thing he said is he, he said, good, good for you, son. And I was like, well, I don't know if that's advice or that just is cathartic for you. I don't know what that helped. But, but, but he, here's what that whole conversation did for me. It, um, it gave me a perspective of, of what my dad has done, which gave me a greater appreciation for my father. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to look at... We're going to look at our Heavenly Father and specifically what the cross says about God. And we're going to ask God to really kind of shift our perspective this morning. A lot of times uh, we look at or we talk about the cross for what it says about us, which I, think, which is, I think is great. And that's a great thing that we do here. We talk about because of the cross, we're free, we're owned, we're adopted, we're, we're children of God, we're forgiven. We, we spend a lot of time talking about that, what the cross says about us. But this morning, I just want to take our text and, and kind of shift our perspective a little bit and see what the cross says about God or what it means about God. So Romans chapter 3 should be there. And I'm going to back up a little bit um, some of the text that Jake taught last week just to give us a little bit of context for where we're going this morning. So Romans chapter 3 verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation. So we don't hear that word a lot. We're going to kind of camp on that word a lot today. Who, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. And it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just in the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let's pray and ask God to really help us to understand the text and to really hear from him this morning and, and, and really make the most of our brief time together. So pray with me if you would. God, I love you. And um, God, I think that, that song, the last song we sang before I got up just really sets... Um, the tone, and God, that, that is my heart's cry this morning, God, is that you would be blessed um, by what is done here, God, that what is said, and um, God, that 
that it would create in us and stir in us an affection for you, God, that when we leave here, that you'd be blessed in the way that we work and blessed in our homes and in our marriages and in our neighborhoods, God, that, that you would just be blessed when you see your children. Um, God, I confess that you have complete ownership over what um, happens here today, God. And so, Holy Spirit, I just ask that you would guide and direct, God, bring um, just clarity to um, my, my speech, and God, would you number my words. God, I want you to be made much of today, and so please don't allow me to distract or detract from the beauty of the gospel this morning. God, you are higher, high and lifted up. That's the, that's the reality. That doesn't depend on us. God, I just pray that you'd be high and lifted up in our hearts this morning. God, this is, this is all for you and for your glory, and I commit it to you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. The first thing that we see about the cross, um, we see that the cross says about God from this passage is that his wrath has been satisfied. So the first thing that we see about God that the cross says about him is that his wrath has been satisfied. The key word in this section is this word propitiation. Jake said this last week about this section of scripture, how many, so many scholars say it's so important. It's the marrow of theology or it's the heart of the gospel. And some scholars say that this word propitiation is the most important word in the universe. Propitiation means to turn away wrath by the offering of a gift. That's a really simple definition, but it's, it's satisfying someone's anger, con- consolating the offending person. And the, the NIV, if you're reading from that version this morning, it uses the phrase sacrifice of atonement because propitiation atones for the offense and wins reconciliation for the offender. In this context, what the Apostle Paul, when he writes this letter, what he's talking about is he's, he means the death of Christ turns away the wrath of God. We're going to unpack that. And, and Paul is describing what God did at the cross of Jesus Christ. It would it'd be kind of like this if I could illustrate it. If you, suppose you had saved up all the money that you needed to buy a new car and you've had your eye on this car for a while and you finally got what it takes, the resources to go and to purchase that car. And so you go to the lot, you get that car and you're just absolutely stoked. You finally got the car you wanted. And you're driving for about a, a week and you notice little things start to go wrong. Like the window doesn't kind of roll down like it kind of sticks sometimes or the CD player doesn't eject or the AC doesn't blow real cold or uh, I'm describing every car I've ever owned, by the way. And, or, you know, the engine starts to make that weird noise and you got to go to the mechanic and you're standing there like a lunatic making a bunch of weird engine noises back and forth, you know, and, and you kind of, everything just starts to fall apart on a car. Now, what would you say about this new car that you just purchased? Would, would you say, well, it's, you know, it's still a, a great car. I mean, it gets me around, right? It's, it starts up, right? No, you would say, I demand that this um, is made right. I demand that this is fixed. I'm not satisfied, right? You would say that. Well, it's the same thing. You and I are created in the image of God, right? Uh, and, and, and we are created and designed to be a certain way, and all kinds of things go wrong with us, and so God is right to be unsatisfied. Here's another way to look at it. So hypothetically, let's just say um, there might have been an instance where I forgot about some kind of significant date in um, my relationship with my wife, like birthday, anniversary, or any of the other thousands of days designed to honor her. And so let's just say that, uh, and I'm okay with all those days, that, that I just happened to, for, to forget about that. So on the way home, I might stop off and purchase some kind of gift, right? Flowers or a card or a puppy or whatever it is that, that, would make, that would make her happy, right? And I would offer that gift so that I might propitiate her wrath or turn her wrath aside. 
it's kind of weird talking about wrath and your wife in the same sentence, but it happens. Uh, to, that way I might be able to restore a good relationship with her. The, the, the best example is found in the scriptures in Leviticus chapter 16. You don't have to turn there, but you can just kind of write that down if you're taking notes, and you can, you can see what was going on there, and that, and that describes the Day of Atonement. The, the Day of Atonement was a significant feast for uh, the nation of Israel because it was the one time of the year that the high priest would, would walk through the veil and enter into the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and to make an atonement for the sins of the nation of Israel. And in the Holy of Holies, there was the Ark of the Covenant. So it was a, just think, ornate box. And, and in that Ark, it contained several articles. And chief among those was the Ten Commandments, the, the law of God. And on top of the Ark was uh, the mercy seat. And, and, and the mercy seat uh, was the dwelling place of God. And there were two angels or cherubim, and they would have their wings kind of folded towards each other. Um, and, and the Ten Commandments in the box, it pointed to the fact that man had broken the law of God and that men were sinners. And above the box, um, above the mercy seat, was a pillar of cloud and smoke or the Shekinah glory of God. And that represented the holiness of God. And, and, and when you would look at that, you were reminded that men were sinners and would be judged by a holy God. But in between the holiness of God and the broken law of God or sinners was the mercy seat. And on the Day of Atonement, the, the high priest would put on these special robes, and he would go through a special purification process, and he would enter in, he would offer and sacrifice a bull for himself and a, and a goat for the people. And, and since no one else was allowed in, what they would do is they would tie a cord around his ankle, and so if he were to die because of some kind of mishap or something just he wouldn't do right in the ritual, that they could just kind of fish him out, and then they would have this, the next guy is up, right? So how would you like to be that guy? You're like, okay, go get him, see if you can do it better than he did. Um, and, and, and that, then he would enter into the Holy of Holies. And he would go in and he would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. He would sprinkle one time towards heaven and seven towards the mercy seat. And there were two goats that were sacrificed, actually. One was kept alive and one was killed for the sacrifice. And when the high priest would come out, the people would breathe a sigh of relief because that meant for another year they didn't have to fear the judgment of God. But when the high priest would come out, he would take his bloody hands and he would place them on the head of that goat of the live goat, and he would confess the sins of the nation of Israel, and he would symbolically transfer the guilt of the people to this literal scapegoat. And then the goat was let out into the desert where he would be in the wilderness abandoned and alone. And that would speak of the fact that these sins were forgiven and were put away by God. Now both illustrate what God accomplished for us at the Christ of Christ. God put forward his son, presenting him, displaying him as the sacrifice and the scapegoat. You see, Jesus is our mercy seat. He's between the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. And Jesus satisfied God, which means that you don't satisfy God on your own. Your exemplary life, your, your, your perfect family, your achievements, your success, your church attendance, your church giving, your service, it does not satisfy God. And when we justify ourselves, Jake talked about this last week, when we justify ourselves, we offend God because it diminishes the costly triumph of Jesus Christ. Amen. Because he alone lived the perfect life that, that we never lived, and he died the guilty death that we deserve to die to remove human guilt. All the sacrifices of the Old Testament, they look forward to the, to the New Testament where the Lamb of God would take away sin forever. You see, the Old Testament had a, had a flaw because it would temporarily forgive sins based on the blood of animals. But when Jesus died on the cross, his blood was like the blood on the mercy seat. It turned away the wrath of God. Amen. 
And the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus. Okay, so why did God do it this way? Is this really the only way that that it could happen? Because as an infinite God of infinite holiness, which means he's completely unique, he's not like us, he's other than. All sins are of infinite magnitude. And only a gift of infinite value could turn away the infinite wrath of God and Jesus Christ, the God-man, was that infinite gift. And that's why we celebrate him. That's why everything that you hear and, and, you, and we say and we do centers around him because of his infinite worth and value. Amen. And that's also why our efforts to earn the acceptance of God, to propitiate his wrath, are doomed to failure. What could you ever do? What could you ever offer where you could pay God back for the gift of his son? What do you have that you could give that would be worth that? The beauty and the wonder of propitiation is that the offended party who is God has every right to be angry with sinners. That's us. But he offers the gift of his son, Jesus, to turn away his own wrath, purchasing for guilty sinners with his life the possibility for us to be forgiven and accepted by the God of the universe. So at the cross, God is saying, look, here's your only escape from yourself. Here's your only escape from your self-righteousness. Here's your only escape from, from my wrath. Here is your life, the only life worth living in Christ crucified. And if you've come this morning, if you're here and and you've come to saving faith in Christ, you have a life that's surrendered to him, God is satisfied with you. Not that you, that you're going to be eventually, not that you, that you're really working really hard to get and all the the kind of stuff you're driving yourself crazy for, but the, the you that you are right now, God is satisfied in you. God's happy with you for the sake of Christ. And it doesn't depend on your religious activity to placate an angry God. Maybe that's why you're here. Maybe that's why you're here, because you're trying to get some more ticks in the good column. Because in the gospel, it's God himself who placates his own wrath. And he doesn't cry out for our blood, he offers his own. The second thing that the cross says about God, the first thing it says that that his wrath is satisfied. Which which really, that's, that's freeing enough for us this morning, church. But the second thing that the cross says about God is that he is just and he's justifier. So verse 25 and 26, Paul kind of covers this idea. So, so why did Jesus have to die? Why didn't God just forgive everyone? Why didn't he just say, you know what, it's all good, uh, just forgive it all? It, it'd be like, so football season is around the corner, praise Jesus. And um, <laughs> it, it, it'd be like, you know, you're, you're watching your team and at the end of the play, you see the yellow flag on the field, right? So if you're a Cardinals fan, you're familiar with this. Um, And so you're like, oh man, everything we just gained completely wiped out. How great is it when the ref goes over and he picks up the yellow flag and he waves it in the air and he says, there is no foul on the play and he sticks it in his pocket, right? That's great. We love that. So why doesn't God just do that? Why doesn't God just say, there is no foul on the planet. It's okay. It's It's totally removed. Because God is holy and he cannot allow sin to go unpunished. His justice demands that every sin be punished no matter how small it may seem to us. If he were to forgive sin without proper punishment, he would cease to be holy and just. God would no longer be God because he would have been denying his own character. All sin, all sin is an offense to God. When David commits his... um, adulterous affair with Bathsheba, he says, God, you and you alone have I sinned against. 
and all offenses might be punished, which is why we just can't say, God, my bad. And he says, hey, no worries. Don't sweat it. Someone has to pay the price. In verse 25, it, it tells us, Paul tells us that God in his divine forbearance or patience, he passed over former sins, which means that God now had to vindicate his name. Now, if you don't know who God is and his holiness and his glory and his worth, all that stuff, it doesn't really mean anything to you, well, then this isn't a really big problem. Because you think that God should just conform to the way that you think things should go. You have a, a really man-centered view just of life. And you say, well, God should do things the way that I think it should be done anyway. So who cares if God passes over sin? That's good. Turn to Psalm 50, if, if you will. Psalm chapter 50. And this is a song uh, written by a man named Asaph. And Asaph was um, David's worship leader. And he writes... And really helps us out and helps us to see who God is. Psalm chapter 50, verse 1, says this. The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. And out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes, he does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire, around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness for God himself or God alone is judge. So he starts off by establishing and reminding us who he is. And he has these really powerful images and, and he says, look, God is summoning everyone and he's gathering everyone together so that he can judge him because he alone is judge. In our arrogance, we judge God. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. We're not on trial. God's on trial. And we don't take him seriously in our judgment. But there's this picture of a raging fire, devouring fire is what the text says, in this huge storm and tempest that's coming. And we just think, well, you know what? When God gets here, we'll tell him what's up. Okay. Romans 3.23 says that we have fallen short of the what? The glory of God. And God says, all sin is a despising of me and my glory. John Piper, who is a pastor and author, he says it this way, that God says all sin is a preference for the fleeting pleasures of the world over the everlasting joy of my fellowship. When we sin, God says, you demeaned my glory. You belittled my worth. You dishonored my name. That is the meaning of sin, failing to love my glory above everything else. And our attempts to make it right are nowhere close to what's needed to bring about justice. And when we live like we earn our own justice, we're saying to God, God, you need us and our activity to, to clear your name and to justify ourselves. You say, God, I am an important part of this process. And if I didn't do this, then, then your name would be your name would be mud. Look at verse 9 through 13. God continues to talk about who he is. He says, I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your fold. So the, the Old Testament sacrifice system there. For every beast of the forest and mine, the cattle on a thousand hills, I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? 
So the people of, of Israel, they were bringing these sacrifices to God as if they were doing him a favor. And he says, look, you, you think if I was hungry, I would come to you? I've seen what some of you eat. He says, you're the last person that I would call on because I don't need from you. Sometimes we'll go like on a missions trip or we'll serve at church or we'll kind of, or we'll give a big gift or we'll be generous or something like that. And we'll think, man, I heard God really needed me to come through for him in that. And if I hadn't have done that, man, God, he really, I really bailed him out this time. Or when we look at certain people and we're like, man, they've got just such a great skill or they got a lot of money or they're really smart or they're this or that. And we're like, man, God needs them. Imagine what they could do for God. God needs them. Just think about for a second who you are and who God is. What does God need from you? We're in the middle of this building project thing here. Do you think you need to give because if we didn't build that building, God would be homeless? He says, I don't need your temple. I'm the Lord of heaven and earth. I don't need to be served by human hands like I'm helpless because I give everything to mankind. If he didn't give you your next breath this morning, you wouldn't have it. Why? One reason. One reason that you would seek him, that you would want him, that you might find him. God says, all I want is relationship." He says, don't try to earn it. Don't spend your life trying to do stuff for me like I need that. Here's the really sad part in all of this. God screams from heaven, I don't need you, but I want you. And we scream back, I know I need you, but I don't want you. God showed mercy and patience with his forbearance by passing over former sins, the scripture tells us. But we've twisted it into a cheapening of his glory and a cheapening of his grace. Now, again, from a man-centered or humanistic perspective, that doesn't really bother us. I mean, what is the big deal really with God being kind to sinners? That just seems to make sense to us from a man-centered point of view. Look at, look at verse 16. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statues or take my covenant on, on your lips? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you're pleased with him and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free reign for evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother and you slander your own mother's son. These things you have done and I have been silent. And you thought that I was one like yourself. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. God says, you hate my instruction and it's evident. You see evil, you laugh at it. You don't speak out against it, you engage in it. God says, because I'm silent, you think I'm okay with it? Romans chapter 2, Tim taught through that. God's patience and kindness should lead us to repentance, but often it makes us feel like we got away with something. Like, well, you know what? I, I stole a little bit from work. I stole a little time. I stole a little money. I stole a little product, whatever, and I didn't get busted, so maybe it's really not that big of a deal. God hasn't seemed to interfere in, in this affair yet, so maybe I can push it a little bit further. God didn't stop me when I went to that website, so maybe there's other websites that I can go to. God didn't seem to kind of intervene when I was gossiping against someone, so maybe I can kind of push that. Maybe I can just start making up lies about them. It doesn't matter. We think we get away with something. And God says, look, my silence does not mean it's okay. He says, because a storm is coming, so don't think, and don't be so arrogant to think that God can't punish because you are storing up 
wrath for yourself. And if you're here today and you are unwilling to leave your sin, to confess it, to repent, God says, be warned, you are storing up wrath for yourself because God is just and fair to punish sin. If he didn't, he wouldn't be God. If a a crime against someone is not punished, it communicates that the person is not worth much, and it says that the law that was broken was really not that important in the first place, and the one that enforces the law is really not that powerful. And I'm not excited about God's judgment. I'm not up here like hellfire and brimstone and trying to kind of beat that over the head. But look, it's in the scripture, and I can't deny that it's real. I mean, I guess the phrase tear you apart could mean something else, but I doubt it. God gives us a warning, and because I love you, I give you a warning too. And we're thankful that God didn't tear us apart. God saw his his glory being despised by sinners, his worth belittled, his law broken and disregarded, his name dishonored by our sin. And rather than slaying his people, he allowed his only son to be slayed. He didn't tear us apart. He allowed for Jesus to be tore apart on our behalf. How could a God of love and holiness love sinners and not overlook their sin? That's the equation that needs to be solved in heaven. And so God sent his son to die for sinners. And his patience, his tolerance, his forbearance, it more deeply displays the justice of God. The just punishment for sin was fully met in the death of Christ. And sinners who trust in Christ could be freely forgiven. And if you're here today and you haven't done that yet, today is your day. So as Paul says, God is both just in punishing sin and the justifier of those who believe in in Jesus. God as the justifier also means that we are not the justifier. We can't exonerate ourselves. We can't excuse ourselves. We can't talk our way out of it. We can't work our way out of it. You can't serve your way out of it. You can't give your way out of it. God's holiness demands that sin be punished. But here's the best part. God's grace provides the sacrifice. What God demands, he supplies. We believe that salvation is a work of God from first to last. It's conceived by God, initiated by God, provided by God, applied by God, sustained by God. And so if you're here and, and, and you're not a child of God, I, I have a burden because my heart hurts for you because I want you to know Jesus, but I don't have the burden of, oh man, I really got to talk these people into it. Because it's God. And, and, and if you feel uncomfortable, that's good. That means you're in the right place this morning. That means that God is, is working on your heart. There's a, there's a pastor, he's, he says this, God the justifier is the only one who can rescue us from God the just. And the cross is God's way to forgive us without bending his own rules. And he feels good about this forgiveness. So the cross helps us to see that the wrath of God is satisfied and and the cross also says about God that he is just and justifier. And the last thing we're going to see is what the cross says about God is that he is our advocate. Turn to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. If you're a former sword drill champion, you're really digging today. So 1 John chapter 1.
verse 8 says this, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. I hope that you see like in this whole process just how important um, the awareness and the recognition of sin, which is why Paul spends so much time at the beginning of Romans, which is why we spent so much time talking about um, just the reality. We're, we're sinners. We're far from God. We've rebelled against God. Verse 9, but if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the propitiation. There's that word again. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. We're going to zero in on that word advocate. And an advocate is uh, someone who has an official relationship with you so that whatever the advocate achieves, you achieve. And whatever the advocate loses, you lose. An advocate has a relationship with you so that whatever that person does, it transfers to you. So in ancient times, this was called a champion. So two armies would come together, and rather than having lots and lots of people killed, they would just put forth these two champions, and they would fight each other. The, the Greek word for this is archegos or archegon. And, and the champion would represent the army and the, and, the, and the country and would battle another champion who was doing the same. And if that champion won, if your champion won, you were treated as a victor. If your champion lost, then you were treated as though you were defeated. So the, the modern-day version of this is a lawyer, which I know is kind of a stretch, but stick with me. Um, especially if he has power of attorney. Because the lawyer stands in and represents the client so that whatever the lawyer achieves, the client achieves. Whatever the lawyer loses, the client loses. So the scripture tells us that Jesus is our advocate. So if that's true, so what is he doing? He's speaking. He's speaking. He's talking on our behalf because he knows how and he is the only one who is qualified to make a case that we could not. So he stands as our representative speaking on our behalf. And we think about this, and I, I love this part of Jake's message last week because I've actually been kind of a victim to this line of thinking because we think uh, that he's up there and he's just begging God to give us another, another chance. Like, oh God, I know he really blew it this time, but I, I, I'm pretty sure he'll get it right next time. So would you please, if you can just kind of find it in your heart, if you could just maybe this one time, if you could. And we think about that too, that it's just a, hey, get up, try again, get up, try again, get up, try again. That wears us up, that, that, that doesn't bring freedom. So 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, it doesn't say our advocate is Jesus the merciful or even Jesus the persuasive. It says Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Amen. When I was studying this, I stumbled upon a, a Tim Keller article that really helped me with this. I'm going to give him credit so I don't present myself as smarter than I am because I'm not that smart, but he's really smart. Uh, and, and he says this, a really good lawyer doesn't just play on the emotions of the court. A good lawyer has a case. And the case that Jesus presents is himself as an atoning sacrifice, as a propitiation. So the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus is not just before God asking for forgiveness or for mercy, but Jesus is telling the Father what the law is. Jesus doesn't have to persuade the Father because the advocacy of Christ was the Father's idea. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that God in Christ was reconciling the world unto himself. So Jesus Christ stands before the Father, before the justice of God, and relentlessly and continuously and always and eternally, he's saying something like this. Yes, Paul did. He sinned again. 
but I died the death that he should have died, and, and I have lived the perfect life that, that he should have lived in his place. I'm his advocate. He is lost in me. And when you look at him, you have to see me. And you have to see all that I've done, and you have to see all that I am. And, and, and Jesus says to his father, it would be unjust for you to take two payments for his sin, because I've already paid for it. And so Jesus doesn't ask for mercy. He demands justice. And justice is greater than mercy. It's greater than forgiveness. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful in what? He is faithful and just. When we confess our sins, we have an advocate with the Father. God forgives our sins because he is just. It goes beyond forgiveness because Jesus has accomplished righteousness for us. He's not just the one who pays our penalty, but he's our advocate. He's the one who stands in for us. Hebrews 12, 2 says, Looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That word author in that verse in the, in the Greek, archegos. He is our champion. He is the one who is out front for us. He is the one who accomplishes it for us. That's why we celebrate him. That's why we sing songs that are all about him. That's why we want to stir our hearts and our affection for him. That's why in a moment we're going to take communion so that we remember him. That's why we gather here so we can remind ourselves, those of us who are his kids, yes, he is good. Jesus, yes, he is the center of attention. Because all week I was bombarded by things that tried to tell me that I was the center of attention. And so I need to refocus. I need to reorient. I need, I need time in his word. I need time prayer. I need time to be contrite and broken over my sin. I need the time to celebrate that Jesus is central, that he is the archegos, that he is the champion, that he is the one. In Acts chapter 6 and 7, there's an account of a man named Stephen. And Stephen was the first martyr of the early church. And Stephen was preaching one day. And his preaching was not very popular, especially when he told all the religious leaders that they were wicked sinners. And so they dealt with Stephen um, by executing him. And they drug him out into the street. And they started to heave these huge rocks on Stephen. But before he died, God gave Stephen something. Stephen looked into heaven, and in the scripture it says, I see Jesus Christ, the Son, of, the Son of Man, standing at the right hand of God. And he saw his advocate. And so here on earth, Stephen is being belittled, and he's being called a liar and a cult leader and a loser, and he's being condemned. His reputation was ruined. Everything we care about, everything we care about was being crushed. And Stephen looks up into heaven, he says, I see him. And if you read it, it's almost like he forgets he's being executed. In fact, at one point, he prays for the forgiveness of the people who are heaving rocks on him. That's the whole point of, of this today. Is, and that's the so what, the application, the question you ask yourself. How will experience Jesus Christ as your advocate, your propitiation, your atoning, wrath-satisfying sacrifice, your champion? How is that going to shift your perspective this week? How is that going to allow you to see God uh, for who he is? The cross this week, it's going to allow you to see God as satisfied because of Christ. When you see God as satisfied because of Christ, now you can hate sin and not yourself when you sin. You hate sin, not yourself when you sin. 
When you see God as just and justifier through Christ, you stop relying on yourself to justify yourself. And finally, because of the cross, when you see God as your advocate in Christ, you live in freedom. Not freedom to do whatever you want to do, but freedom to do what you ought to do, which is ultimately what you want to do. When you see him as your advocate in Christ, you're free to obey, you're free to love, you're free to be generous, you're free to serve, and you're free to worship. And that's what we're going to do right now, and I hope that I hope that this does. I hope that this fuels our time of worship together. The band's going to come, and we're going to sing, and we're going to have a time of communion. But I'm, let's pray. So if you would, just kind of just bow your head and close your eyes. And, and we do that just to remove distractions. I mean, there's nothing necessarily particular about your posture in this moment, but um, it does. It allows us to just kind of focus. And if you're wrestling with anything that was said, just know that any... Anything that you're feeling or dealing with right now is not because of me. It's because of God in this place and moving and by his spirit. And so I, I don't want you to just kind of deny that or just hope that it's just some kind of fleeting feeling that passes because God is trying to say something to you this morning. And so would you just let the, the next few moments and as we enter into a time of communion, would you just let him speak to you? Let me pray as the band comes. God, we love you. God, we claim um, Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, his finished work. God, we don't stand on our own merit. We don't stand on our own achievements. God, we, we cling only to the cross of Christ. God, I thank you for your great love towards us. God, I do thank you for your great mercy and your grace. I know that you have all of those things, God, that you are all those things. But God, I thank you this morning that you are just. God, I thank you that um, you were never concerned about how you would solve the equation of your holiness and our sinfulness. God, the cross was never a plan B. God, you knew before the foundation of the world, God, what you would do, how you would glorify, how you would vindicate your name. And God, this morning, I'm just so thankful that you did. God, now as we enter into this time of communion, God, we, um, we just pray that our hearts would be soft. Um, God, that we would be bowed down to you. And God, that we would remember you. It's in your name I pray, amen.